You're listening to The Voice. Benvenuti a Leuven. Leuven, Jürgen. Добро пожаловать в Leuven. Bienvenue à Leuven. Willkommen in Leuven. Leuven에 오신 걸 환영합니다. Welcome in Leuven. Hello, everybody. This is The Voice on Radio. My name is Philip, and I will be your host for this evening. And, well, unfortunately, today we have no co-host, but I promise you that we're going to have a very, very exciting podcast today. Well, so I think we should jump in straight in the news. So I really tried to, well, as I usually mention, to try to select news that are not related to the coronavirus. And so I think we can get started. So the first news is made by KU Leuven itself. Neurobiologists at the university have discovered how the signaling molecule neuromedin U plays a crucial role in our learning process. The protein allows the brain to recall negative memories and, as such, learn from the past. So, let's suppose if a certain type of food or drink uh, has made you ill in the past, well, you will avoid it in the future. Uh, Well, this is what common sense actually says, and this is what your brain tries to do. Similarly, uh, you will try to avoid an uncomfortable situation that has made you anxious before. And this learning process, which is based on unpleasant or negative memories, is extremely, extremely important. It has fascinated researchers for years. And finally, this research from KU Leuven shed light on this matter. Because our communication between brain cells is very similar to those of worms, researchers have been studying these worms, actually, to get to know more about our brain cells. And I will quote the researchers now we found that the protein plays a very specific role in the learning process. It ensures that the worm is able to learn from past experiences. If the worm encounters a salty environment without food, it will avoid the salt on future occasions. However, if we temporarily block neuromedin U, the worm forgets this experience and will be drawn to the salt again. This means that the protein doesn't help to make the association but it does help to recall it. And I will quote the researchers again. It's clear how the signaling molecule neuromedin U plays a crucial role in learning and memory, and more specifically, the retrieval of negative memories. This leads us to suspect that other similar molecules, so-called neuropeptides, also perform these specific functions. In other news, The U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, in short, USPTO, has ruled that artificial intelligence systems cannot be credited as an inventor in a patent, the agency announced earlier this week. The decision came in response to two patents, one for a food container and the other for a flashing light, that were created by an AI system called DABUS, DABUS. Among their arguments sustaining the law is the fact that U.S. patent law repeatedly refers to inventors using human-like terms, such as whoever, and pronouns like himself or herself. The group behind the application has argued that the law's reference to an inventor as an individual could be applied to a machine, but the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office said that this interpretation was way too broad. And I quote, under a current law, only natural persons may be named as an inventor in a patent application. So, unless the law changes in the future, artificial intelligence is likely to continue to be seen as an inventing tool rather than an inventor per se. Our third news comes from an international team of astronomers that have captured 15 images of the inner rims of planet-forming disks located hundreds of light years away. These disks of dust and gas similar in shape to a music record, form around the young stars. The images shed new light on how planetary systems are formed, similar, actually, to how our solar system has been formed. The findings have been published in the journal Astronomy and Astrophysics. Our fourth news comes from NASA, which selects human landing systems for their Artemis mission, which aims to put the first woman and the next man on the moon by 2024. They've given huge amounts of money to SpaceX, Dynetics, and Blue Origin, the three companies that were selected for their human landing systems. The most amount of money going, of course, to Blue Origin. Last but not least, 
the European Research Council has awarded its advanced grants for groundbreaking research. Two KU-Leuven researchers are among this year's recipients, the engineer Bart Demor and philosopher Jan Opsomer. One will attempt to find the best possible mathematical models, and the other will seek for traces of Aristotle. So, and I will quote Bart Demor, the engineer. With this research project, I want to go back to basics and draw on insights from all sorts of sub-disciplines of mathematics, from system theory to algebraic geometry, to find out how users can be certain that they are using the best model from a class of models, and that the result generated by that model will be reproducible time and time again. Now, I will quote Jan Opsomer, the philosopher that got awarded this grant. I conducted three small case studies in my grant application. By using points of criticism from Aristotle on Plato or Plato's followers as my research angle, I was able to discover three entirely new connections. So my research hypothesis is this. If I was able to make new discoveries for three small cases by actively looking for criticisms from Aristotle vis-à-vis -vis Plato, and later traces of these criticisms in the writings of Plato's followers, we should revaluate all the text in this manner. I hope to glean many new insights with this approach. So, this was it for our news segment. Of course, as always, please tell us, do you enjoy these news? Uh, do you want us to find certain news? Do you want us to focus on a certain uh, topic? Let us know, and we'll take your feedback into account. Um, but... Actually, before going to a small break, maybe it would be nice to give a recap of the last shows so you guys are aware of what we did in the past. So, two and three weeks ago, we saw a beautiful symphony of podcasts that made us all travel through Latin America, experiencing their culture and especially their music. So, these shows were both in Spanish and in English, to give a little twist, and they were hosted by Nicholas, my, my good friend Nicholas, and co-hosted by our writer, Stephanie. So check them all out. They are right now on Spotify, podcast.com, and mixcloud.com. Make sure to still be here after the break because we will be mentioning all of our social media. But basically, last week as well, we had a show hosted by myself and co-hosted by Maria. And we were joined by Vanessa Ivan to talk about the relevance of psychology in this period and to discuss our personalities. We also had a Romanian-themed, well, playlist of songs, so it's very, very cool, and we, of course, made sure to, well, to highlight, um, yeah, the essence of what Romanian music actually is. So now I will be going to a song called The Girl from Ipanema by Joao Gilberto and Stan Getz, but before that, I would like to tell everybody a little bit something about the song. So. Uh, I don't know, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but I would say it's Joao Gilberto. He was a Brazilian singer who was a pioneer of the musical genre of bossa nova, bossa nova being, well, the theme of today in the late 1950s. Around the world, he was often called the father of bossa nova, and in his country, in Brazil, he was referred as Omito, which translates into the legend. The inspiration for this song came while the songwriters were sat in a cafe bar called Veloso in Ipanema in the early 60s. Every day, they would see a beautiful young girl walk by while out shopping or on her way to the beach. The two men, the two writers, were enchanted by her beauty and used their crush on this local girl as a source of inspiration for their new song. The song was originally composed for a musical comedy written by Moraes and had the name Menina Due Pasa or The Girl Who Passes By. Funnily enough, actually, while making my research, I found out that The Girl from Ipanema was also used during the opening ceremony of the 2016 Olympics in Rio. So, as I was saying, what you will hear next is The Girl from Ipanema by Joao Gilberto and Stan Getz. Enjoy. Coisa mais linda, mais cheia de graça Ela, menina que vem e que passa Um doce balanço, caminho do mar 
Moça do corpo dourado Do sol de Ipanema O seu balançado É mais que um poema É a coisa mais linda Que eu já vi passar Ah, porque estou tão sozinho Ah, porque tudo é tão triste Beleza que não é só minha, que também passa sozinha. Ah, se ela soubesse que quando ela passa, o mundo sorrindo se enche de graça e fica mais lindo por causa do amor. And we're back. This is The Voice on Radio. 
So the song that you just heard is The Girl from Ipanema by Juan Gilberto and Stan Getz. So basically, this song is a cover of the original song. There's plenty, plenty of covers of this song, and it's one of the most covered songs from Bossa Nova, actually, in history. But I really liked this one, especially because of the, I don't know, they blend in so many instruments, and it's, it's, it's made in such a happy way as well, which really, I don't know, just made me put it, put it here instead of the original one. Um, but anyways, I would like to highlight our social media where everybody can follow us and check us out. So we are present on Facebook at The Voice International Student Publication. We are also on Instagram at thevoicekuleven.be. And our writer Adele also writes some daily stories on the account Word on the Strat on Instagram. So it's word, well, word, underscore on, underscore de, underscore strat. So word on the strat. We are also on Spotify, podcast.com, and mixcloud.com under the name The Voice on Radio with an exclamation mark, or just search The Voice KU Leuven on Spotify, because Spotify really, well, it's being a little bit annoying, and sometimes it doesn't want to show us in, well, in the search bar, so just search in The Voice KU Leuven. Finally, I would like to highlight our website, thevoicekuleuven.be, where you can find all of our articles. As you all know, we are mainly a student magazine, but we also do this complimentary radio shows because, well, it just makes us feel good and it brings something refreshing as well. So check all of our articles at thevoicekuleven.be. Now, I would like to introduce today's topic. I kind of spoiled it, actually, um, Well, when I was introducing the first song. Um, but essentially, yeah, you guessed it. Bossa Nova is the genre that we chose for today. So let me explain it a little bit. Um, samba may be Brazil's most defining music from a global point of view, but Bossa Nova is equally important, I think, within the country. Bossa Nova infuses samba with jazz and blues to create a nostalgic yet very heartwarming sound. So I've selected a very nice song. This is one song that I really, really love. Uh, so it's called País Tropical by Sergio Mendez and Brazil 77. It's originally written by Jorge Benjor, a Brazilian singer, and this song has been covered by all sorts of artists, including, of course, Sergio Mendes. As some of you may know, during the 60s until the 80s, the Fifth Brazilian Republic ruled in the country, which, simply put, created a dictatorship. To show a little bit the dictatorship stupidity, even Ben's songs were censored. They thought that País Tropical was a secret code. So, <laughs> very messy, but anyways, enjoy the next song, País Tropical, by Sergio Mendes and Brazil 77.
And we're back. This was Space Tropical by Sergio Mendes and Brazil 77. So as I was hinting earlier with the news about philosophy, and as you could probably tell by the title of this podcast, we're indeed going to talk about philosophy. So without further ado, I would like to introduce Andrei Negulescu. He's a good friend who is studying a double bachelor in business and philosophy at the University of Rotterdam. Hi, Andrei. How are you? Hi, I'm good. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much for coming. So I think the best way to, well, to start this conversation would be to ask you, why do you find philosophy interesting? Um, that's a very good question, actually. When I told my mother that I want to study philosophy, she was she really didn't understand. Because she thought, okay, what's the purpose of asking yourself questions such as, okay, what is God? What is being human? What is the world? Why are we here? And all these, you know, typical, stereotypical philosophical questions. And I I was drawn to it because I found it interesting. I thought it's it's worthwhile asking these questions, but I didn't really know why back then. But then I started actually learning about philosophy. And I realized that, for me at least, the ultimate purpose of philosophy is to question the very foundations of our thought. Because we, we always find ourselves in, in various, you know, uh, mental, let's say, paradigms, in the sense that we take some things for granted. You know, for example, today we would argue that the paradigm we find ourselves in would be kind of a paradigm of success, maybe, where we take it for granted that the ultimate goal in life is to have a successful career, to make a lot of money, to own a lot of things, and to have a happy family. And this is something we take for granted now. While in the Middle Ages, it was a paradigm of getting to heaven. That was the whole thing. Happiness did not count. This current life did not count. All that mattered is to act virtuously so that you would ultimately end up in heaven. And that was the paradigm. The paradigm in ancient Greece was that things work, and that you need democracy at that level, you know, how democracy was in, in, in Athens. It wasn't really democracy because only a, a, a handful of people actually had the right to vote. And before the beginning of philosophy, people just took whatever happened for granted or attributed it to, to gods. And then philosophy came and it kind of shook everything by saying, well, let's start questioning things because we actually don't know. Yeah, is, is there actually a clear start of philosophy? What is your opinion on this? I, I don't think I can say that I have an opinion on this. Normally, philosophy is said to have started with... with I, I, firstly, I think humans have always kind of philosophized a bit because it's in our nature. But the first regist, like the first notable uh, beginnings of actual what you call philosophy uh, came from Greece, from the pre-Socratics. I think one of the agreed-upon first philosophers was Thales, who also did a bit of math, like most Greek philosophers back then. Yeah, and talking about, well, scientists, actually, philosoph wait, actually, people of science were called back in the day natural philosophers, right? Well, back, you have to always consider when you look at philosophy, one of the things we have to understand is we cannot, we, we as humans find it very hard to empathize with um, people who have a different level of knowledge and understanding of the world than we do. And you can realize that when you try and think about yourself a couple of years ago and you just can't empathize with the actions you were doing back then because you cannot consciously, you know, uh, put yourself in the boots of a person who did not know the things you know today. And when we think of philosophy throughout history, this is very important because back when the first philosophers emerged, the first theories of the pre-Socratics was that everything is water or everything is fire. You know, this is how it sounded. And now it might sound utterly dumb, but back then you had nothing. There was nothing. You were surrounded by things around you and they made no sense whatsoever. And the first people who started to question themselves, to question these things around them and to try and define them were called philosophers because they had a love for knowledge. They were actively concerned with gaining knowledge. And the first philosopher who tried to do, let's say, a taxonomy of the world, you know, a system of the world to explain how things work in a, in a, based on a couple of basic concepts was Aristotle. And uh, back then it still wasn't called natural science, but that's what he was trying to do. Like he was trying to define all objects in terms of seven, I think, 
um, properties. So he said every single thing in the world has seven properties. And in this kind of, of systematic way of thinking, which is present in science, right? Because in science, we try and reduce everything to something very simple and to a sort of basic set of principles. And then um, during the Middle Ages and later at the dawn of the Enlightenment, um, the, the idea of natural science emerged and the birth of science is, uh, is believed to be um, when Bacon, Francis Bacon, said his famous, um, his famous quote, knowledge is power. And back then he argued, okay, the only way for humanity to tame nature and to make sense of the things around us and for us to progress is to know. And he decided that you can't just know based on assumptions, you have to know based on experience, on testing. You can't just say, okay, I believe uh, leaves are, are green because God made them so. No, he wanted, to, to, he wanted you to cut the leaf to try and understand what is inside it, you know. So this is the beginning of empirical thinking, and after all, empiricism is what stands as a foundation of all science. And slowly throughout the, the Enlightenment, more and more philosophers, they were all still philosophers, started focusing on certain aspects of knowledge. Like Descartes, for instance, I mean, he was a mathematician, and we know him for that, but he was also a natural scientist, because he was trying to, a natural philosopher, sorry, because he was a philosopher who was stu actively studying nature and fo focusing on nature. And all the people back then who were not thinking about, okay, does God exist or what is the essence of the world or what is the essence of man, all the people who were experimenting on the world and who were trying to understand nature were called natural philosophers. And then as each field started developing enough, it, it got to a level to which it had its own name. So you would no longer yeah. call it, like for example, Newton, Newton was the biggest natural philosopher of history. There was no physics back then. Okay, you kind of highlighted how, well, philosophy and science are interconnected in a way. Um, if you wanted to convince someone that they're not antagonistic completely, like many people actually think, what would be your main arguments on that? The main argument is that they can't be antagonistic because science is philosophy. Like, you shouldn't differentiate them. It's just that science is a branch of philosophy that became so big and so clear that it got its own identity. Unlike, for example, metaphysics, right? You don't, you don't have metaphysicians anymore. But back then you used to. And back then metaphysics was seen just as, as, as a science as physics. Um... <clears throat> But they're clearly not antagonistic because they have different purposes. Science is in its own paradigm. Science has its own paradigm. It's the idea that you can know the world by experiencing it, by analyzing things um, empirically, by doing statistical uh, experiments. And from, what, from some perspectives, this may be wrong. I mean, it's clearly a good way of understanding physics and nature. It's probably the only way because you can't just make assumptions and look at it and be like, mm-hmm, yeah. It's probably that way, but it might not be the most suitable way to study um, behavior because in some sense, yeah, behavior has to be analyzed um, experimentally, but in other senses, it might be more interesting to try and find the meaning behind. And often experiments take things at face value. They only tell you how things are. They never tell you why they are that way. And... So this is one of the, of the places where, where maybe there's a limit of science, right? Science reaches its limit, and it's something to think about. It's something to consider, you know, should we try and understand everything in this way, or should we also try and look for meaning? And again, this is a very philosophical way of thinking, right? Because you're taking thinking, and you're thinking about thinking. And this is the purpose. Um, but what philosophy does now and what philosophy when when science became so ubiquitous and so powerful philosophy kind of restrained itself to study more <clears throat> things that are related to morals to people's place in the world they stopped trying to concern themselves with the world itself you have very few philosophers i i, I believe almost none today who will start to tell you about you know the seven properties of matter because they know that that's that's in the realm of science that's a full-fledged arm itself. But you still have philosophers who debate on what happiness is, who debate on um, 
whether the current paradigm we live in, uh, whether Hollywood is good for the world or it's actually manipulating us, on whether um, there are power struggles in society, on whether democracy is the best alternative for us. So this is where philosophy is now. It's no longer asking itself about the world, it's more asking itself about man's position in the world. Well, why don't we start with, well, this question. Why do people need philosophy? Why did it start? Well, sorry for actually uh, taking ahead on that in the first question. Um, That's fine. But um, they started it because initially, remember, as I said, back then people knew nothing. You had no physics, you had no hadron colliders and uh, no telescopes, so you had to make sense of the things around us. It's one of the things that characterizes us as humans. We try and make things, sense of whatever is around us. We don't just take things for face value. A monkey will never question itself, how does a tree function? It's just, it's just a tree and it serves a function for him, for, for the monkey. It can climb in it, it can get its bananas from it or whatever, and then that's the end. For humans, we go beyond. We look at a tree, we don't only think, okay, how does this serve us? We think, yeah, but how does this work? And this is inherently wonderful about us. It's, it's very beautiful. And it's the clear source of philosophy. So this is how people started needing philosophy. I mean, it would be really sad if people wouldn't have started back then saying that the world is made out of fire. We would not be where we are now. Because the very reason for which they asked themselves, okay, what is the world made of? And they reached this very simple answer that it's made out of fire is the same logic and cognitive process that makes us look at the stars through telescopes. Yeah, well, I think we're, we're ready for a break. We've been going on for quite a while now. So <laughs> the next song that you will hear is Wave by Antonio Carlos Jobim. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. So Wave includes an ensemble of elite jazz musicians, including trombonists, flautists, and the bassist Ron Carter. Uh, actually, he's the most recorded bassist in history, and so, well, I hope you'll enjoy it. Um, so, basically, in this song, you will hear instruments like piano, guitar, the trombone, the French horn, and even, you know, the violin and the flute. So, enjoy. We'll be right back. Thank you. 
welcome back. This was Wave by Antonio Carlos Robin. So again, to let everybody know what's going on, we're currently with a student in philosophy, Andre. And so we were speaking a little bit about paradigms. So Andre, could you run us through the process of reaching the paradigm we currently found ourselves in? Um, interestingly, it all started in the 16th century, I'd say, right? Because, I mean, of course, it all started at the dawn of humanity, but more relevantly, it all started uh, concretely um, with, the, with the Enlightenment. Um, for 2,000 years, we had lived under the... No, 1,500 years. We had lived under the mark of Christianity, which had stopped us actively from trying to discover things about the world because what it was doing is it was telling us, okay, yeah, you can look for the truth in the world, but as long as it fits with the Bible and with God. And of course, that kind of limits any possible initiative to question the foundations of reality when you can question the foundations of reality up to a limit. That's counter-philosophical. That's the opposite of philosophy. And so you had during the, the medieval times, you had some philosophers who were mostly religious philosophers like Thomas d'Aquino, and who based their systematic thinking on the Aristotelian model that I spoke about earlier, because that was the only basic science that existed. Of course, some pseudosciences emerged, but those were, by philosophers, they were generally seen as pseudosciences, such as astrology, alchemy, things like this. I think alchemy is, is the correct way of saying it. Yeah, so you're saying that philosophy was kind of considered a threat by then, back then? Of course, because you don't want, the church didn't want you to question anything. If you start questioning nature, you start seeing the flaws that are that exist in the Bible. And so they really like the philosophers to try to find, to make sense of those flaws in the Bible. Like the, the core of Thomas d'Aquino's, I think, um, philosophy was to find that, you know, that inherent incompatibility, you know, it's the key problem of the Bible is that, okay, God is all good and all powerful. So then why is there evil? It's either that, He's not so good or that he's not powerful enough to stop evil from being. And so many, like the philosophers back then, they tried to find an answer to this dilemma. But outside of that, you didn't really have philosophers. And whenever you had somebody who was thinking, let's say, out, out of, outside the box, he was burned as a witch or as a wizard or as somebody who's um, encouraging pagan beliefs. Um, you know, the story of Giordano Bruno, who was burned because he believed that the Earth is not the center of the world, but that there is actually more planets. And he, he even framed it in a religious manner. He said that we, we can't see the beauty of God's creation because the beauty extends so far, so much further than just to our planet. And they still burden because they found that thought threat threatening. If I can ask you a question, why do you think religion is so influential? Why does it have such an effect on people's minds? Actually, I can reach that if you... Um, if I will arrive at existentialism, upon which we will touch if we speak about coronavirus, um, that, there I can answer this question, because it's actually very much related to that. Um, but yeah, back then, not knowing anything, let's say that in that context, people didn't know anything, so of course, you take whatever explanation you receive. And the Bible was a plausible explanation at that point, and there were, like, you couldn't really disprove it. Like today you might have really good arguments against the Bible, but back then you didn't really have arguments against the Bible. It seemed like a very plausible truth about the world. Um, yeah, so then the Enlightenment basically was, did the following thing. I don't want to spend too much time going through it, but the, the core idea of the Enlightenment was to create the autonomous subject. This is how Kant named him. Kant came, let's say, at the peak of the Enlightenment. He put an end, let's say, to, to the, what, we, what we commonly agree upon as being the period of the Enlightenment. And Kant said that the ultimate um, achievement of this um, movement in philosophy and art and thought was that man, we, we created this idea of a man or woman who can think freely, who can actually um, free himself from all the chains that bind him, which before were, were um, the Bible, the, the church, monarchy, the idea of a monarchy. And th this was the ultimate result for Kant, right? We are people who can, we can question authority, we can question the church, 
And that's important because that allows us to philosophize. It allows us to question the foundations upon which our world is built in order to strengthen them, to make them better, so that we can build better and higher. And that was the basically the Enlightenment is what it defines the way we think now because during the Enlightenment this whole idea of progress came this whole idea of taming nature think about it Francis Bacon said we have to learn how to tame nature and think about the implications of that very idea today when we we didn't stop by taming nature we started abusing it and that's all based on that paradigm you have many cultures around the world which were not uh, touched by, by this kind of thinking, which believe that you're part of the flow, you're part of nature. You don't control nature, you are nature. And this was the way, you, this is a very, very good way of thinking. But we, in the, during the period of the Enlightenment, started considering that no, we're not nature. We are actors, and nature is our board, and we play on it, and we play with it. You see, like this is the point of philosophy because we take these things for granted. For us as Western people, we, we think, like if you dig down, you realize that your assumption is that you are a player in nature. And you can't possibly conceive the idea that you are as much nature as the tree that is next to you because ultimately you are. There's no difference between you and the tree. And many cultures think this way. But philosophy, the Enlightenment brought us to think the way we think now. Can there be any, anything agreed upon in philosophy, or is it always subjective in every single way possible? <laughs> it's, it's hard, because the, the purpose of philosophy is not even to reach consensus. The purpose of philosophy is not even to give answers. The purpose of philosophy is to frame questions, is to make you ask the right questions. Um, for example, Kant was so influential, and everybody sees Kant as being one of the biggest philosophers of all time, because he was the philosopher who just, after, you know, during the Enlightenment, before that, most philosophers were metaphysicians. They were trying to find God and to find man uh, as what it is and what the world is, and, you know, to find all these explanations that, are, that go beyond what we can see and beyond the physical. And Kant, basically, the conclusion of his own works was that, yeah, I mean, you can't know God. You just can't. It's beyond the powers of philosophy. So we shouldn't even try. We should start focusing on ourselves. So you see, it's a different way of framing things. For, for a metaphysician, coming and saying, yeah, you can't know God, is the ultimate failure. For Kant, it was just, yeah, I mean, let's just accept this and go on with our lives. And yeah, you have some philosophers who agreed with each other. You had some philosophers who did not, but you can never speak of truth in philosophy. Yeah, so, so when Kant, so you already see this idea that we have to tame nature, that we're actors in nature, which is fundamental to the way we think today. And then came this very powerful idea of success. When you suddenly start trying to tame nature, you, you, you give up the idea that you're part of a flow and you start um, acting and believing that you should influence the flow. And if you start influencing the flow, then you start having a hierarchy based on who influences it more successfully, right? Who reaches the more of whatever you're trying to reach. And this idea of success emerged. Um, also, another thing that emerged uh, thanks to philosophers like Jean-Jacques Rousseau was the idea of happiness. Happiness was a word that was mostly irrelevant until Rousseau. Because nobody cared about being happy, everybody cared about going to heaven. And this life did not matter. And Rousseau brought the idea of emotions to the forefront of philosophy. And that was very special because now we speak a lot of happiness. I mean, you have billions of books written every day about how you can be happy and reach fulfillment, which was not something people concerned themselves with before the Enlightenment. And ultimately... You had all the economical thinkers who started, you know, defining the boundaries of capitalism and drawing the lines that define it. And you kind of end up with this recipe, you kind of end up with today's paradigm, a paradigm where everything is driven by market powers, where we slowly see how relations between people and values have taken a secondary place in in the whole landscape. 
Because ultimately, yeah, we try to say, yeah, love is the most important. Yeah, love is the most important. But I think a lot of people in this world give up love for uh, financial achievement or success. Yeah. Is, is philosophy expanding exponentially? I mean, is its horizon just expanding? For example, okay, now we have uh, the philosophy of technology. We have different types of philosophy. How, how do you see it in the, in the future, in the, in the near future? I have no idea. And I think answering this question would be, is just, I, I, I have to say from the beginning, it's not based on knowledge. It's based on just an assumption. I feel like philosophy is playing a very small role nowadays uh, because everything is moving so fast that uh, we no longer have time to think. And we don't know, we no longer have time, especially to question things such as why are we moving so fast? I mean, think about it this way. You spend months raising money to buy a pair of really expensive Nike sneakers. And at no point whatsoever during that process, you stop and question yourself, is it worth it? It's a pair of plastic shoes. So if we can't question these small things, because everything's moving so fast and we think that, okay, that pair of sneakers is going to bring us ultimate happiness, then how can you start questioning things such as, okay, is money all that matters? Or um, what is really valuable to me in life? Are there more philosophers nowadays proportional to the population than, than before? Than, uh, suppose, in, you know, last century? I don't know, but I doubt it. I really doubt it. I think there were more philosophers back then. Um, especially today, like we had a big influx of, of you know, globally known philosophers during the the end at the end of the 20th century you had like, the second half of the 20th century you know you had Foucault, Derrida, all of these really famous philosophers and today I mean the most trending philosophical debate in the past 10 years I think was the debate between Jordan Peterson who's a psychologist and Slavoj Žižek like that was the biggest the big the, the most prominent moment in philosophy in the past 10 years from a public perspective well to close this off we'll be going on to a very short break so the next song that you will hear is called opato by again joao gilberto so as i said before he is considered the father of bossa nova and of course referred as omito in his own country translating into the legend so enjoy and we'll be right back after the break Vinha cantando alegremente, quen, quen, quando o marreco sorridente pediu para entrar também no samba, no samba, no samba, o ganso. Gostou da dupla e fez também, quen, 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 olhou pro cisne e disse assim, vem, vem, que o quarteto ficará bem, muito bom, muito bem. Na beira da lagoa foram ensaiar para começar, cuti, cuti, como fubá. A voz do pato era mesmo desatar Jogo de cena com o canso era mato Mas eu gostei do final Quando caíram na água Ensaiando vocal Quen, 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 quen Quen, 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 quen Quen, 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 quen O pato Vinha cantando alegremente Quen, quen Quando o marreco sorridente pediu Para entrar também no samba No samba, no samba O ganso Gostou da dupla e fez também Quen, quen, quen Olhou pro cisne e disse assim Vem, vem Que um quarteto ficará bem Muito bom, muito bem Na beira da lagoa Foram ensaiar para começar Cuticutico no fubá a voz do pato era mesmo desacato Jogo de cena com o ganso era mato Mas eu gostei do final Quando caíram na água Ensaiando vocal Quen, 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 quen 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 And we're back! This was O Pato by Juan Gilberto so we were discussing a little bit about yeah the different types of philosophers that we had the past centuries, but I would like to kind of get to now times. So we're all facing this horrible virus. How? What would be the philosophy behind this virus? Um, 
That's a good question. It's I hope that one of the good things that this virus will bring about, because there are some some good things and we have to acknowledge them, is um, it will maybe make us philosophize a bit more. And the reason for for that is, as I said right before the break, the music break, um, the main reason for which we don't philosophize nowadays is because everything is moving so fast. But look out the window now, and you're going to notice that things have kind of stopped. And boom, in place. You know, we were going like a train at maximum speed, unable to even look out the window because everything was so blurred because of the speed we were going at, and suddenly we stop. And suddenly, you can no longer distract yourself with petty things. You have to be in your home. You have to be alone for many of us. And so inevitably, you start questioning things. Inevitably, you start asking yourself questions about yourself about the world. Maybe you start realizing that what you miss most in this time of quarantine is not a pair of Nike sneakers, but it's your friends and your family. What you realize is that it's not um, a car that gets you through this quarantine. It's movies, art, books, music. And in this sense, I think the best answer would come from the existentialist philosophers and generally from the 20th century philosophers who are very much concerned with the idea of what defines us as humans. And the general consensus they reached is that what defines us is the fact that we are conscious of our existence and the fact that we are conscious of the idea of possibility. And this is a bit of a foggy concept and I'm going to try and elucidate it in, in a simple way. Philosophers generally believed that possibility is the ultimate condition of the human. And what they mean by possibility is that we can envision what we can do, what we can be, what we could have done, and what we could have been. So this is the idea of possibility from their perspective. Yeah. How, do you, how do you actually define, I mean, how do you prove this, that it's not uh, also valid for, for animals? How do you prove that it's only humans that actually are capable of uh, feeling this? Well, one of, the, one of the key things is if you look at humanity and compare it to our closest um, relative, the, the chimpanzee, you're going to see that in the past 2,000 years, the chimpanzee has not really changed much of its lifestyle. We have. A lot. And this is, I mean... This is one of the key differences where you see, you know, because a chimpanzee, as I said, looks at a tree and he says, okay, that's a great tree. We look at a tree and we try to understand why that tree is there and how it works. And in this sense, um, I, I don't think it's something that is worth proving because it's not even like the, the, the whole thing with possibility. The purpose is not to show what differentiates us from animals. But if you think about yourself a bit, if you dig down, and I think everybody who listens to us today can, can empathize with that, think about it. That feeling of dread you have when you think of what you could do and you're not doing. Of what you could have done, but you haven't. That's something that is very human and that, for, according to philosophers, is very important to understand. It's the idea, and many philosophers actually went further and they said that the ultimate feeling is the feeling of dread. This existential dread that comes from the fact that we know that our time on earth is finite. We're going to die at some point. We are being on to death as um, Heidegger would have said, being towards death. And we have to acknowledge the fact that we have no purpose, because that's one of the ideas of existentialism. You have no purpose. You have not been sent on earth as a prophet to bring out good. You are here and that's it. There's no more meaning to that than the very fact that you are. And basically existentialists said, okay, we have to acknowledge that we don't have an ultimate purpose and that we therefore have to take our existence grasp it, acknowledge the fact that we are here without any further meaning and try and give meaning to our own actions ourselves and try to actively define ourselves. Uh, Heidegger was very, um, he dismissed most people as he said, most people live by the others in the sense that we live as the others live. We follow the rules of the others and we never question who we are, why we are, where we are, and we never actually say, okay, no, I don't want to be as the others. I want to be myself. I want to grasp my existence and act upon this idea. And this is 
I hope what coronavirus can, what not coronavirus itself, but the quarantine can make us do. It makes us, we're alone with ourselves and we have to grasp who we are, why we are, and maybe this will change a bit the way we act in the future. Yeah, because in, in a way, this is the thing that drives us to be more productive. Just, yeah, this feeling that you're all alone now and that, um, how, how to put this, that the only way you can improve yourself is to do things. I mean, you have nobody around you right now. So you're basically the only actor right now in your life. So in a way, this is why I think a lot of people may be even very, very productive during, uh, during this period. Yeah, because you, you grasp your existence. Like people have started, I've, I know people who have never been concerned with their health and are suddenly doing sports and eating healthy. And it's ironic, but it's true. I mean, it's a good thing. Yeah. What could you say about the morality of us opening our countries again? So to, to allow free travel and, you know, to open businesses. Because on the one hand, we're battling, okay, saving economies of certain countries, but on the other hand, we're risking many, many lives. This is, um, before I can answer this question, I have to make a disclaimer. We're talking about decisions that influence people's lives. So we cannot talk about it lightly, and all that we say is maybe an opinion and uh, nothing more than that. Um, I think here is also kind of in the, we enter the realm of, of statistics and economics in the sense of business, um, and firstly, it depends on the gravity of the virus. If Im immunity tests show that ultimately the death rate is very low, then we can start thinking about it. Like, for example, just today I read that in the region, in the, in the um, Bergamo region of Italy, immunity tests on statistically relevant samples of the population showed that 61% of the population is already immune to the virus. So that means that the death rate is somewhere at around a, a bit below 1%. And then you have some other statistics, such as the fact that, from what I understand from the, from the head of the, uh, of the epidemiological initiatives in Germany, around 50% of the people who have died in Germany of coronavirus would have died anyway within the next six months. So this data kind of reframes the problem because you start comparing the risks of getting coronavirus and dying from it to the risk of dying in a car accident. In the USA, you have 1% risk to die of a car accident during your life. So if the, death, the risk to die of coronavirus is lower, then you start considering, okay, I'm willing to climb into a car every day to go to work, but I'm not willing to go out on the street because I would die of coronavirus. There's a problem here. There's a bit of a cognitive dissonance. So this is a statistical question. And then the morality of it, as you asked, um, I think it depends, you know, you have different ways, ways of looking at ethics. If we go back to philosophy, you have um, the Kantian way of saying, okay, there are absolute rules. And if one of those absolute rules is you, never, you should never make a decision that kills people, then of course you can't open the economy. And then you have more instrumental views which start and think, okay, what, what, what brings the greater good to the most people? And for the moment, like when they decided taking the initial um, measures, from what I understood from most perspectives, the, the greater good was to actually take these measures. But from now on, the problem might change. Because, for example, if tourism falls the entire year the European Union will have a hole in its GDP of at least 30%. There has never in history been registered such a fall in GDP. And the impacts could be huge. We could find ourselves in a crisis for 10, 15 years. It could bring us, literally, take us five steps back in history. So in that sense, maybe it would be more, from an instrumental perspective, it would serve the greater good of more people to open the economy than to keep it closed to save a couple thousands lives. So, so we're, you're saying basically that we're kind of taking this utilitarianistic approach right now. Um, I mean, we're at the middle because on one hand, yeah, I mean, the best way to save lives is to stop the economy forever. But I mean, you're not really saving lives in the end because if people die of hunger, then <laughs> it's, it's a bit worse. Um, so we're in the middle because we're still taking very, like, we're not like, the, the most utilitarian approach would be just, just let everything go. 
in the sense of not lifting measures gradually, not asking people to wear masks in the bus. No, just letting everything go back to normal because then you might have an economy that actually rebounds and everything goes back to normal. And of course, you'd have millions of deaths. But you had millions of deaths and the rest, 8 or 9 billion people in the planet, go on about their lives, you know. But we're in the middle now, you know, because we're not going for that utilitarian approach. We're also not going for the very Kantian, you know, yeah, the rule is to not kill people. So we're going to do everything that's possible to avoid that. What are some some very important examples of philosophy actually being put into practice to, to solve an issue? Um, philosophy, I don't think that you I mean, of course, all the natural science things. I mean, you could put Newton's philosophy into practice to solve issues back when it was seen as philosophy, but now we agree upon it as being science. So if we limit ourselves to just philosophy that has not become natural science, you will see that generally how it happens is you have a bunch of clever philosophers thinking of something at some point, which is pretty crazy for that time. And then 20 years later, that philosophy becomes mainstream. So when you had a bunch of philosophers thinking that we should no longer blindly obey to the laws of the, of the church, at that point in time, it was completely absurd and dangerous. But 50 years later, 100 years later, it's normal. And to come back to, to the present, um, if we think of what Foucault and uh, Derrida and all of these um, French philosophers were speaking about, in many situations, they were speaking about all this idea of power struggles in the world and that we are always under hegemonic domination. And if you look today at the left wing, at this activism for political correctness and tolerance, it's theoretically an attempt at removing these and unmasking these hegemonical power relations. You know, they always believe that there's somebody oppressing us. And this was the, the Foucaultian thing, way of thinking 30 years ago, 40 years ago, actually. So you can see that reflecting back on us today. Yeah. Well, Andre, thank you very, very much for all of your answers. It's been, well, really interesting. And I hope all the listeners that are currently well, listening to this podcast also enjoy this type of content. If you do, let us know. And we'll try to bring back some content about philosophy someday. Uh, but yeah, thanks so much for coming, Andre. It was really great to have you. It was very enjoyable. I hope I didn't stray off too much. <laughs> nah, you're great. So, well, we have to close the show, unfortunately. And actually, this is going to be one of my last shows, uh, well, for the semester at least, because, well, as you probably know, um, I'll be going to Australia next year. So I guess it's going to be a while since I come back. Um, so maybe to close this off, we'll be having a beautiful song by our only uh, female singer this time. So the song is called Vida Bella by Elizabeth Cardoso. And well, until next time, everybody, take care and... We'll be waiting for you next week. Amar sem fim Lua nova Mulher pobre de mim Vento sul Que o seu corpo acarinhou Céu azul De manhã Me Eu e ele, o menino pescador